Well, this morning we're going to be returning to our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. We took a little break from it for Holy Week. Uh, this morning uh, we pick up where we left off. We're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 9. I invite you to turn to it in your Bibles. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, you may use uh, either the black or the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, but I will be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Hebrews 2, 5-9 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man, that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of God. It is precious. It is life-giving and it endures forever. Pastor Kent Hughes once said that a preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. The author of Hebrews, I think, uh, fits this job description perfectly. Remember, again, uh, we said this in the first couple weeks of our sermon series, the book of Hebrews is very much structured like a sermon. Uh, And that's because the book probably was originally a sermon preached to a local congregation in the first century, a congregation made up of primarily Jewish converts to Christianity who were suffering severe persecution from the Roman Empire and from other Jews who rejected Jesus Christ as the long-promised Messiah. And because of the persecution that this church was going through, many of them were considering the idea of going back to Judaism, uh, of abandoning Jesus. And their thinking was that before they were Christians, when they were practicing Jews, they did not experience this kind of persecution. And so the author of Hebrews is preaching to them this message of don't go back. Don't turn away from Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of of the Old Testament religion. That is, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that Judaism pointed towards. He's the substance. He's the meat and potatoes. So don't go back to types and shadows. And he begins to show this congregation in the first century that Jesus is better. He's better than anything else. And so far we've seen the author of Hebrews say that Jesus is better, that he is the fuller revelation of God to us. He's better than all the prophets. Uh, We saw how Jesus is better than the angels, that he is a greater eternal, more powerful heavenly being, the eternal Son of God Himself, whereas the angels were and and merely are servants, messengers of God. And then we saw the author of Hebrews issue a warning. And this is where the 
creature begins to afflict the comfortable, so to speak. He gave us this warning in the beginning of chapter 2 to make sure that we do not drift away from the gospel. Make sure that we do not abandon Jesus Christ. Make sure that we make use of every spiritual discipline, prayer, reading the Bible in our own private lives, uh, reading the Bible in public, attending gathered worship every week, even if it means sacrificing other things in our lives. The call was to do everything we can to pay attention to our spiritual condition so that we do not drift away. Because if we drift away, if we go back to our lives before Jesus, if we abandon the Christ, we will not escape the judgment of God. That's what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 addressed. And that's where we left off in the book of Hebrews. But now we come to a passage where the preacher turns from afflicting the comfortable to comforting the afflicted. Now remember again, this sermon was preached to a group of Christians who were suffering severe, severe persecution. They were afflicted in their bodies, and because of that, their souls were in torment. And it's quite possible and and probably probable that many of them may have been feeling abandoned by God. They may have been thinking something like this. Okay, preacher, we hear your call not to abandon Christ. But has Christ abandoned us? We're suffering so much pain. We're suffering so much persecution. And like our Savior on the cross... In his darkest moment, they may have been crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? And so for the author of Hebrews, he sees it as his job now to bring them comfort in our text this morning. And it's a tremendous comfort, not only for that little church there in the first century, but also for our little church here in the 21st century. The comfort that the author of Hebrews brings is that God has not abandoned his people amidst their suffering. In fact, God has a plan for mankind, an amazing plan, a remarkable plan. And so his encouragement here is that for those who cling to Christ, for those who keep their anchor firmly in the soil of the gospel of Jesus, for those who do not drift away, their destiny in Jesus Christ is almost beyond belief. Their destiny... Our destiny is to be made greater than the angels and actually to rule in the world to come. That is, in the new creation, in the coming age when Christ returns and fully consummates his kingdom here on earth. It's an amazingly bright future that we as the people of God have if we continue to cling to Jesus Christ by faith. Now, to show us this amazing truth, the author of Hebrews turns our attention to Psalm 8. Look at verse 6 of our text this morning. He says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is a direct quote of Psalm 8. Although, uh, I do have to laugh a little bit at the phrase, it's been testified somewhere. Uh, it's as if, and I don't know if this is what really happened, but it's as if the, the preacher sort of forgot where it was in the Bible 
that this has been testified to. And it, <laughs> it's just, it's just kind of a preacher thing to do to just say, you know, hey, it's written somewhere in the word of God that this is so. I, I remember the first time I went before Presbytery in, Presby- in, uh, in, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, to be licensed to preach. And, and the man examining me said something like, you know, you really know your Bible well, but you seem to struggle sometimes with the exact references, the exact uh, chapter and verse. And I said, yeah, that, you know, that's, that's true. I can't always recall the chapter and verse of where something's found. And, and the guy said to me, that's okay. Uh, even the author of Hebrews had to say at one point, oh, it's written somewhere. Uh, Psalm 8 is where it's written. Uh, and Psalm 8 says some amazing things about mankind, about us, about this feeble, frail organism that God created from the dust. And this is what is true of us according to Psalm 8. It says God is mindful of us. God cares for us. He says that although we were made for a little while lower than the angels, and that simply means that we've been made with a body of flesh, Whereas angels are spiritual beings and not confined to the limitations of the flesh. It says, although we were made lower than the angels for a little while, mankind was crowned with glory and honor, having dominion over the whole creation. And no doubt what the psalmist has in mind in Psalm 8 is Genesis 1, 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God's original intention for man, which says God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. We were created to be kings and queens of all creation, brothers and sisters, We were created to be kings and queens of the earth, to have dominion over it. That's an amazing truth. That is God's plan for mankind. This was his design for us, to have dominion over the earth. But no doubt the people hearing this sermon in the first century, and I think us today as well, are going to respond to this by saying, wait a minute, we certainly do not see this to be true. In fact, I think we see the opposite. Mankind is not ruling over creation. We're abusing creation. We're wreaking havoc on it. And creation is wreaking havoc on us. We're at mercy of the forces of nature. There is no evidence at all of us having the kind of faithful rule and dominion over the earth that Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 speaks of. And of course, we know why that is, don't we? We know why we don't see the reality of Psalm 8 or Genesis 1 today. We don't see it because of sin. We don't see mankind ruling creation because of Genesis 3. Because of mankind's rebellion against the King of Kings. Against the Creator God. And the author of Hebrews, he recognizes this to be true in verse 8 when he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The author of Hebrews knows full well that this is not the reality that we live in today. Mankind is not 
reigning over the creation. We do not have dominion. You know, this may be one part of the fall of mankind that maybe we don't talk a lot about. This this may be an aspect of sin that doesn't get much of our attention. We often talk about how our sin separates us from God, right? Instead of being at peace with God, instead of having shalom with God, we're now at enmity with Him. We're born into sin, and thus we are born enemies of God. And also we talk about how our sin puts strife between one another. We recognize that because of our sin, we're at war with our fellow mankind. We're in constant conflict with each other. But a third devastating effect of sin is that we're now at conflict with the creation. Where we were supposed to be kings and queens of the earth, faithful stewards of God's creation, ruling in peace and harmony, now we are in conflict with the created order itself. And we are not living up to our call to have dominion over the earth. Nor can we live up to that calling because we are corrupt in every way. And so maybe we think something like this, okay, if the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage these persecuted Christians, if he's trying to comfort those who are being afflicted, how does quoting Psalm 8 actually help? Aren't we just really being reminded that we've messed everything up? That we're not living out the reality of who we were created to be? This isn't really comforting to us. And there may be a truth in that. But we can thank God that the author of Hebrews continues on. He doesn't just stop in verse 8. He goes on to verse 9, and here's where the comfort comes in. Verse 9, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Here is the heart of His comfort to God's people. Here is the hope of the gospel. Yes, you're right. You do not see mankind crowned with glory, ruling over creation. But we do see one man, Jesus Christ, crowned with glory and honor. One man who is ruling and reigning over all creation right now. And the author of Hebrews is saying that while the original intention of man was seemingly thwarted, by man's rebellion, by sin. He is saying God will still achieve His original intention for mankind. And how do we know? We know because God has sent into the world a second Adam, who unlike the first Adam, who sinned and rebelled against God, this new Adam, this second Adam, Jesus Christ, did not sin. He did not rebel. And he is, as Paul says, the first fruit of a new humanity. We see him, Jesus Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Notice the parallels there with verse 7 of our text. Verse 7 of our text this morning and quoting Psalm 8 is speaking of us, mankind, as a race being created a little lower than the angels. And for us, that's a great honor. 
For us, that's a grand status. For creatures made from dust to be elevated to a status just underneath the angels is a wonderful privilege. But for Jesus Christ, who the author of Hebrews has already established earlier in the book, is far superior to the angels. For Jesus to be made lower than the angels is a grand act of humiliation. What the author has in mind here, of course, is Christ's incarnation, His life, His death, that event in which the eternal Son of God took on true human flesh and a true human soul, that event in which the eternal Son of God emptied Himself of His heavenly riches, that event in which he was born in the lowliest conditions in a stable in Bethlehem, that he and his life came under the law, the law of God that he himself wrote, that he as the eternal son of God suffered all the miseries that come with living life in a fallen world, that he came under the very wrath of God itself in the cursed death on the cross, and that he was buried in a borrowed tomb and was under the power of death for a little while. This is what it means when, G- when the author says Jesus was made for a time a little lower than the angels. That the eternal Son of God would empty Himself, come and live among us, share in our humanity. There could be no act in the whole of all eternity that was more humiliating than this. This is the humiliation of Jesus Christ. But the author does not stop with Christ's humiliation. He goes on, and he says then that Jesus Christ was exalted. Verse 9 continues that while we see Christ's humiliation and His life and death and burial, we also see His exaltation. We see Him in the Gospel, rising from the dead on the third day. We see Him ascending back into heaven, taking His seat upon His throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. All His enemies being made a footstool for Him. And that is where He is today. We see Him today ruling and reigning upon His throne over all creation. And amazingly, the author of Hebrews says that Christ's exaltation is so grand and wonderful because of His humiliation. Because Jesus, the One who is exalted, the One to whom all things are subjected, because of His humiliation, because of His suffering, because of His tasting death, and that doesn't just mean He had a little sip. In Greek, that word tasting means a full partaking of. Because of Him partaking death for everyone, meaning everyone who calls on Him as Lord and Savior, placing their faith in Him. Because of His humiliation, Christ is exalted to the highest position. And here's the thing. You and I, and all who are looking to Jesus in faith, all who are trusting in who He is and what He has done for us, we have the hope, we have the promise that we too will be exalted and we will reign with Christ in the world to come. That is the hope that the author of Hebrews wants to give 
the hearers of his sermon. That is the hope that the Holy Spirit wants us to hear today. Because brothers and sisters, salvation is so much more than simply being forgiven of our sins and given the promise of eternal life. It is that. It certainly is that. And it, and, and, and the, and the truth that we are forgiven of our sins and given the gift of eternal life is so much more than we deserve. It's unfathomable. It's an amazing amount of grace that we're shown. But salvation is more than that. The Bible describes salvation in terms of union with Christ. That means that we are in Christ. That means that we share in who He is and what He has done. We share in His righteousness. We share in His suffering. We share in His death on the cross and the atonement for sins. We share in that too. But it also means that we will share in the resurrection. It means that we will share in Christ's exaltation. It means that we will share in His glorification. It means that we will share in His eternal reign, in His eternal dominion over all creation. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, and there's that call that Paul has in his writings to not drift away from the gospel. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's what Paul says. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. God's original intention for humanity to be kings and queens over the earth could not be thwarted by sin, brothers and sisters. It will be realized for those who trust in Christ because we will reign with Jesus Christ in the new creation. Yes, it can be hard for us to see this now. We live in what the theologians call the already, not yet. We live in this in-between time where Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and exaltation has already conquered sin and death and the devil. He has already set his people free. He is already on his throne reigning from heaven. And because of that, our future is secure in Jesus Christ. But we are also awaiting the day for Jesus to return in glory, for every knee to bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One person said that we, as the people of God, are, in a sense, living between that time, uh, between D-Day and V-E Day during World War II. D-Day, the Normandy invasion, uh, was the decisive moment in which the Allies defeated the German army. The war, for all intent and purposes, was over on D-Day. The enemy was defeated. But we know that the war would go on for almost another year, right? Until its official end on VE Day. The enemy had to be rooted out. There were pockets of resistance, even though the war was decided. You see, the war was already won, but the victory was not yet fully realized. That's how it is for us. 
the war is done. The war is won, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that is the one who has risen and who is reigning today. But we are living in that time after the decisive battle, patiently awaiting the return of Christ when he will fully consummate, fully establish, fully declare before all creation his victory and our victory. And I hope that truth puts our sufferings, our affliction into perspective. This is how it is that Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. That's the hope that the author of Hebrews wants to give us, brothers and sisters. Endure. Cling to Christ. Do not let your current afflictions, your persecution, your struggles, your griefs, your sufferings, do not let them lead you away from Christ. Instead, cling to Christ because if you keep your anchor firmly planted in the soil of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you persevere, which you will if you truly belong to Christ, if you persevere, then you know that you have an amazing future ahead of you. A future where you and all of God's children will live and reign with Christ over a new creation, one with no sin and no death and no grief and no sorrow. You will reign with Him forever. That is an amazing hope my pastor back in Pennsylvania used to say, and I'm sure he still says it, that the good news of the gospel is that we have an incredibly bright future. It is bright. We cannot even imagine how bright our future will be. But our pastor used to also say that the good news of the gospel is also the truth that anyone can get in on this future. Anyone can have this wonderful future ahead of them. And how? By looking to Jesus Christ. By coming to Him. By putting your hope and your trust in who He is and what He has done. That's the call. To come to Him. Recognize that you are indeed a sinner. That you are like the first Adam. A creature from the dust who dared to defile the holy living God, that you have rebelled against God's perfect law. And the call is to come to Him in grief and hatred for your sin. Come to Him in deep sorrow for your sins and say, like the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. Come to Christ, trusting in His righteousness, in His death, in His resurrection and glorification. Put your hope in Jesus alone. And if you do, the promise of the Gospel is that you will be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. You will be clothed in the robes of Jesus' perfect righteousness. You will be united to Jesus in His death, 
and in his resurrection, you will be adopted into the eternal family of God, counted as a son or a daughter of the true and living God, given all the privileges and rights that belong to a child of the King of Kings. And you can know that you too will be raised up to new life in Jesus Christ and that you too will dwell in all eternity in the new creation, reigning with all the saints and with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. It is, an in, it is indeed an incredibly bright future that you can have. And if you hear the call of the gospel, and if you turn to Jesus Christ, then you will get in on this amazingly bright future.